The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, please take your Bibles and find your way to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, we're making our way through this upper room discourse, which is John 13, 14, 15, 16, and concludes with the high priestly prayer in chapter 17. John chapter 14, this morning we'll be looking at verses 7 through 11, and let me read those just to put them in our minds for reference. John chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I, have I been so long with you and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Los Angeles has always been a trend-setting city. They say all things bad probably start and originate in Los Angeles. That's certainly been the case in the trends of radio broadcasting. L.A. has a reputation for being cutting-edge, trend-setting, going against the grain, and at the head of the list is a station called KFI 640. One of KFI's most popular shows, however, is also its most controversial show. It airs on Sunday mornings, interestingly enough, from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. The program is called The Jesus Christ Show. For three hours every week, a man named Neil Saavedra takes on the role in first-person form of Jesus Christ and takes calls and dispenses spiritual wisdom and practical advice for people who want to know what would Jesus say if I had a question. Let me give you a quote from uh, the Jesus Show's website. Quote, tune in Sunday morning to find out why the young and the old from all over the world listen via the internet and radio for answers to life's toughest questions hosted by Jesus Christ and produced by Neil Saavedra. Saavedra admits that he's not perfect, nor is he Jesus. However, on his show, he plays the role of Jesus himself. He answers in the first person, responding to questions, speaking as if he is, present tense, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I first found out about the show several years ago from a lady who asked me what I thought about it. I had to admit I hadn't heard it, so the next Sunday morning, I tuned in to hear what the show was about, and it was... Spooky, eerie, unbelievable. To hear this man saying things to people as if he is Jesus Christ. Well, I remember the lady asking me, well, what do you think about it after I'd heard it? And I, uh, 
I asked her, what do you like about this? She was obviously enamored with the show. I said, what, what really ministers to you? What blesses you? What do you like? What attracts you to this show? I'll never forget her response. She said, it helps me know what Jesus was like and what he would say if he were alive today. Interesting, isn't it? Listen to the presuppositions of what this, this lady was, was really saying. First, she believed Jesus is dead and not really alive today. Second, she believed an entertaining role played by this man can lead to an accurate and legitimate insight into the personality of the second person of the Trinity. Thirdly, it revealed that the Bible, at least to her, was not sufficient to inform us of what Jesus is like, what Jesus was like, and not sufficient to inform us of what Jesus might think about our world and our lives today. The Jesus Christ Show illustrates the most pressing question in the church and in our world today. Who is Jesus Christ? What is he like, and what does he think? You can't find that out by listening to an impersonator for three hours on Sunday morning. It's important to note that Paul himself warned the Corinthians to be careful of what he termed another Jesus. People posing, people talking about a different Jesus than the historical man from Nazareth defined by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11.4, just listen to what he said. If anyone comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached or receive, you receive a spirit which you have not received a different, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. What he's saying is sarcastic. You would really honestly believe that there's another Jesus beside the one who's defined and illustrated, articulated, worshipped in the scriptures? There is no other Jesus except that one who's defined and revealed in the pages of God's word. Here's the fundamental problem with most people when they come to Jesus. They're not content with what the Bible says about who he is. There's a, a discontent, this idea that there's some kind of mystery that I can find and behold and pursue beyond the pages of the revelation of the Bible to understand who he is. However, for a true Christian, it's the contemplation of who Jesus is, of his work in his life on the cross, his raising from the dead, that brings and nourishes genuine faith and defines right Christology or theology. John Owen said, he is no Christian who lives not much in the meditation and mediation of Christ, and especially the acts of it. Let me read that again. One of my favorite Puritan theologians, John Owen. He is no Christian who lives not much in the meditation of the mediation of Christ, especially acts of it. In other words, the cross, which is what we've come to this morning at the Lord's table. Alistair McGrath says, if there's a heartbeat of the Christian faith that lies in the sheer intellectual delight and excitement caused by the person of Jesus of Nazareth. 
Our elders uh, got together for a couple days, um, uh, actually yesterday and Friday, and we were thinking through and praying through um, our mission in the church, what God has called us to do here on Mission Road, what he's called us to do in our body, and it was a wonderful time, but we spent the most time talking through what is the definition of our mission. It was wonderful, and the reason it took us the most time is you could say, well, the definition of our mission starts in Genesis 1 and goes to the end of Revelation. I mean, where do you stop? Where do you start? How, do you, how can you possibly package all that? But one thing that was very encouraging about the men who lead you is that we were all instantly, instantly central on one feature of our mission statement, of our mission. And that was that we are all about teaching and shepherding people to value Jesus Christ above all else. The living, resurrected, true, and only Savior. And why not? Jesus is the most famous person in history. He's the object of more music than anyone who's ever lived. He's the subject of more poetry than anyone. More books have been written about him than anyone. More money has been spent for his name than anyone. More people have been martyred in his name than anyone. And more controversy has been launched about him than anyone who's ever lived. So the great task of the human mind is, let's say it this way, the greatest task of the human mind is the consideration and evaluation of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You say, why the introduction about Jesus? Because that is exactly what Jesus wanted to rivet into the minds of his disciples on the night before his crucifixion as he was giving them his final instruction, his swan song, the last bit of, of instructive grace he gave these men. You know the context. We've been over it many times before. This is the, the night before his crucifixion. It's Thursday night. It's the, uh, they were preparing a Passover meal. They were sitting at that little table that was U-shaped. That would, a servant would come in and give them food, laying on pillows. Uh, they obviously were, were um, rushed. They came in. No one washed anyone's feet, which was necessary because of the position that you had laying around the table. And Jesus gets up and girds himself and washes their feet. Teaches them a lesson that they're supposed to care for each other and says, this is the, the way you serve the body. This is the way you're supposed to act in the church, serving one another. That true leadership is defined by true humility and service. He has an interaction with John and Peter about the fact that he's going to be betrayed. And then Judas is identified as the betrayer and Judas gets up and leaves. After Judas leaves, then Jesus really has his instructive moment with these men. The 11 are left, the 11 faithful, and it's, it's a remarkable journey to go through these three chapters, to hear the interaction, the questions that they have, because over and over and over, you can hear yourself saying what Jesus says in a far more gracious way than you and I would, really? Really? You would have gotten this far and you don't get it? But the more I study this, the more I find how easy it is to identify with these knuckle-headed disciples. They had heard it over and over and over, and still they needed to be knocked over the head with truth. And Jesus does it so, so graciously, so gracefully, and with such a piercing knife to their soul. 
Well, last time we looked at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 14, where uh, it's a remarkable passage where Jesus says he baits them. He absolutely baits them. Back up in the, the end of chapter 35, he says, um, I'm going away. I'm going to leave. And they got all distracted by that. They never heard his lesson about love and loving one another. And so he says, do not let your heart be troubled. In verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. me. My Father's house contains many dwelling places or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare this place, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, where I'm going to be, there you may be also. And you know, here's the bait, you know the way where I'm going. Silence. What they thought is, wait a minute, Jesus is here in Jerusalem we know the palm branches, remember Palm Sunday? They bring, him, bring the palms in and they lay them down and he walks over them and rides with the donkey and they think, here's the Messiah, he's about to establish the, the kingdom. They are so sure that this is it, that they're arguing at dinner while Jesus is washing their feet. They're arguing over who's going to sit where when he establishes the kingdom. So when he says, you know where I'm going, you know the way, they think, okay, he's going to go down the half mile, the 800 yards from the upper room, down through the streets of Jerusalem to the Temple Mount and set up his kingdom. We need to know where we're going to live, where we're going to sit. And, and he thinks, they think that he's saying, well, you know the way I'm going, you know which street I'm going to take. Then he just leaves it out there. And finally, Thomas, who we usually think of as the one with little faith, he's, he's the brave one here. He says, <clears throat> clears his throat probably, verse 5, he says, um, Lord, actually, we, 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 um, we don't know. We don't actually know where you're going and how do we know the way? I think the full expectation was that Thomas was thinking, he would say, you go to King David Street, take a left, go down, uh, watch this, this guy over here, be careful and get there, we'll establish the kingdom. Jesus says, no, I'm the road, I'm the path, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes, and then he changed it to the Father except through me. They thought he was going to establish his earthly kingdom immediately. He says, no, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to the Father, and the only way you can get there is to come with and through me, establishing forever, forever the exclusivity of the gospel the solidarity of Jesus as the way to heaven. Well, verse 7 really is picking up the continuation of that discussion. And where he starts is the obvious question they would have after he said that. If he's the way to heaven, why? What access? They don't have the full gospel at this point. Remember where they are in the development. They're just trying to figure out what's going to happen tomorrow. So he explains to them why he alone has access to God. And the answer is because he is God. Not a God, not a representation or a phantom of God. He is in human flesh God. Fully God and truly human. And as he does so, I, I think if we want a little outline to follow the Lord's teaching here, he reveals to us four ways to value the deity of Christ. Four ways to value the deity of Christ. The first is in verse 7. Let's say it like this. To look at Jesus is to find God. To look at Jesus, number one, to look at Jesus is to find God. Verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him Remember where we are in the conversation. Jesus has just told the disciples that they know the way to the Father. 
Thomas says, I don't think we know that actually. They were thinking temporally. He was thinking heavenly. So the disconnect, where, where did that happen? Well, there was a sense in which the disciples did know. They knew more than they thought they did. They had just spent three years with Jesus. Surely they had heard something during those three years. Jesus was continually over those three years clearly revealing to them over and over and over who he was, the end of his life and how that would happen, all the way down to saying it was crucifixion, he would be dead three days and rise from the dead. Over and over they had failed though. Over and over they had failed to see him as the only son of God who reflects the image of God. I mean, think of all they had seen. Now, have a little grace for Philip here. We'll see him in a minute. I, 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 the Lord's very gracious to him, and so should we. At, at least he wants to see the Father. At least he wants to see God. I think he was thinking, well, Jesus has access to God. Maybe he could give us a glimpse Jesus' answer to Philip is both indicting and hopeful at the same time. Basically, he's saying, if you had been paying attention, Philip, you would have understood me, understood who I am, but since you didn't, I'm going to make sure you see and understand me from now on. Now, don't miss the lesson here for you and me. Jesus could have easily, at any moment in our lives, said something similar to us. Really? You're still looking? You're still feeling empty? You're still wondering? You're still having doubts? You're still... The, in the club of the O-ye of little faith. Really? How easy it is for us to collect mental facts about the Lord yet miss the overwhelming sum of those facts that we are dealing with God in flesh. Look back at the text. To see. That means to mentally recognize and apprehend. To see... Jesus is to see God. Jesus is speaking about the future, by the way, and we are in that future. It's remarkable. He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's God the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? I mean, think of the remarkable uh, theology he's saying. Are, are you looking at me? Now, Jesus has dirty feet. Jesus is probably um, sweating or perspiring from the fire as he gets close to it. He puts his coat on, his cloak on when he gets away from it, when it's cold. He's a man they had been out in the wilderness with. They had slept in this wilderness with him, gone in the houses with him. They had seen him eat. They had seen him do amazing things. And finally, he's saying, do you not understand who you've seen? Do you not understand who you've been with? If you're an underliner in your Bible, if you're a highlighter or a starter or an asterisker, this is one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. That is an epic earthquake moment in the Bible. So how can you say, show us the Father? Well, the conversation goes on, and when it does, we find a second way to value the deity of Jesus Christ. Number two, to look for God is to find Jesus. Number one, to look at Jesus is to find God. Number two, to look for God is to find Jesus. Verse eight, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. 
What is he asking? I think he's probably thinking in terms that, uh, that Exodus 33 and 34 describe Moses having this vision of God, show me your glory. God takes him, hides him in the little, in the little fissure in the cleft of the rock and says, I'm going to show you my, my afterglow, my backside, the wake of my glory. I think that's what he was thinking. Jesus, can you show us a theophany? You know what a theophany is, right? A, a visual representation of God. Can you show us, show us something cool? Do the trick. You have access to God. Show us a glimpse of God. Notice he says us. I think the disciples were saying, yeah, yeah, show us, show us God. You got to think, in the upper room? Really? What would Jesus say to that? Well, before we look at that, just pause. Let's, it is really easy to be critical of, of Philip here and say, come on, you knucklehead. You've seen him forever. You know he's God. He's, you're going to find that out. What I like about Philip is that he was looking for God. What I also like about Philip is he had the confidence that Jesus could show him God. Yeah, he missed it, but he also got it at the same time. Philip was one of the earliest disciples. He'd spent as much or more time with the Lord as any in the ministry that the Lord had with him over those three years. And here at the Last Supper, he responds to Jesus' revelation that the Father is seen through Jesus. He's okay, okay, then you obviously have access, so show us, show us the Father. Yes, Jesus is about to correct him, but you have to love his heart. Show us God. He wanted to see God. Don't you like that part about Philip? He had a hunger and a thirst for God. He wanted that theophany. But Jesus' answer must have made him swallow really hard. Look back again at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Philip, I mean, have I been with you so long, literally three years, and yet you've not come to know me? Very interesting. Okay, we'll talk about the Father in a second, but you don't know me well enough to know the answer to the question that you're asking? You still don't get it, he says. The Apostle John was right there with Philip, by the way. He was right there with him. And he would have heard exactly what Philip was told by the Lord in response to this. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So, John's interpretation and theology about this is to write in John chapter 1, verse 18... No one has seen God at any time. He's right. No one has seen the Father, God, in all his fullness at any any time. We find out from from Moses to see God is to die. So John says, you're right. No one has seen the fullness of God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of Father, however, Jesus, Jesus, it says he has explained him. That Greek word is the same from which we get the word exegesis. He's exegeted him. He's, he's exposited him. He's explained him. To see Jesus then is to have the explanation of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul will discuss that same concept in a few decades. And it's, this is the verse that raises his hand 
as high as anyone in the Bible saying, Rick, pick me as your favorite. In 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 4 to 6, just listen. You're welcome to turn there, but just listen to the theology. He talks about the God of this world, Satan, who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We could spend the rest of the year talking about Satan is trying to block the vision of anyone to see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Get this. Who is the image of God? Wait a minute. I thought you said God can't be seen. You're right. Jesus is the what can be seen of what's impossible to see. That's the point. He goes on. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. And then chapter 2, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4, verse 6, rather. Just pace, listen. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, that's back in the creation, is the one who has shown in our hearts, listen, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Christ. So back that up. In the face of Christ, in the person of Christ, you find the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. It's overwhelming. It's unbelievable. That's exactly what was going on in the discussion here in John chapter 14. Why does looking at Jesus through faith show us God the Father? Well, it's pretty simple. Because Jesus is one with the Father. He is a member of the Trinity. He is God himself. We find out strange things about Jesus in the New Testament. In Colossians 1, we find out that of the Trinity, one of them was the agent in creation. You know who it was? It was Jesus. When you read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Colossians 1, 15 to 18 tells us that was this Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who was the agent of creation in that moment. He's not subordinate in any way except in his submission to God to do his will. He is God, very God, as the catechism tells us. Prophets, teachers, wise men come and go. Jesus is touted as an anointed prophet, a great teacher, a sage of all ages. But none of those designations has created as much controversy as the fact that he claims to be God, both then in his day and now. The linchpin of Jesus' identity is his deity, He's not a God, but the God, the creator of heaven and earth, the eternal God, the all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God. Listen, the most important thing you can do in your life is get Jesus right, to get his identity right. The most important principle of our parenting is to make sure that we're transferring to our children the true identity of Christ. Who is this Jesus? He's just not a part of the Bible. He's just not the little cartoon that comes into the, the children's Bible in the New Testament. He is the purpose and the point of all revelation. This was true for Athanasius who fought Arius in the 4th century. It was truth for the, the truth for which we still battle the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Christian scientists over the person and the nature of Christ. And make no mistake, the New Testament over and over and over again and again and again affirms that Jesus is God. In fact, in the first chapter of the New Testament, we're introduced to Jesus' identity through his God-given name. 
Matthew 1, 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. I mean, have you really meditated on Jesus' name? He is God with us. God didn't send an angel. He sent his son, God himself. In John 1 to, 1 to 3, we find out in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In verse 18, Jesus explains the person, the nature of God the Father. In John 8, 58 to 59, he claims to have eternal existence as God. And the Jews who heard this were so serious about that, they took up stones to kill him, saying, you're claiming to be God. John 10, 30, Jesus claimed to be the one with God, the Father. The Jews who were present accused him of claiming to be God and blaspheming. Interestingly, Jesus never corrected them. He liked correcting the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He loved finding what they had said wrong and saying, no, no, we're, I'm going to fix that for you. When they said, this man blasphemes and calls himself God, he just let it rest because they were right. Thomas, in John 20, verse 28, says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Most importantly, Jesus acted like God, didn't he? He forgave sins, which only God can do. Read Jeremiah 31, 34 sometime. In Mark 2, 5 through 11, they were most concerned about Jesus because he said he could forgive sins. Who are sins against? What did David say in Psalm 51? Against you and you only I have sinned. Jesus said, I will forgive sins. Who's he claiming to be? Well, they got it. They wanted to kill him for that. Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from the dead. Colossians 2.9, all the fullness of deity dwells in him. Hebrews 1.1-3, he is the word of God. He's the language of God. And of all the texts in scripture, I think the one that I go to most when I get that knock at the door with those guys in ties, they try to open their Bible and tell me that Jesus is a God, not the God. I say, well, let's look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. To me, it's the clearest affirmation of the deity of Christ in the whole Bible. It's absolutely verbatim stated. He's almost finished with the book, and John says, John, the one writing this, says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. Next verse. Who, or this, is the true God and eternal life? Is it clear? I mean, can you be more clear? The only true God, this is Jesus. And their excellent work on the deity of Christ. Robert Bowman and Ed um, Kamazuski say this. Jesus shares the honors that are only due God. Moreover, he shares them because it is due, them as the one who, due him as the one who has God's attributes, who has God's name, whose deeds on our behalf include the divine work of redemption, and who has taken his seat as the Lord enthroned over all creation. Jesus is saying to Philip, you need look no further than me to see God. Thirdly, and these next two uh, uh, points, can I just tell you, are going to be really short, because we... 
we are about to take a swim in the deep end of the pool. And we're going to come up to an issue on the oneness of Jesus and the Father. I tried all week. How can I explain this? How can I explain this? And then I realized, well, it's going to be hard for me to explain because I I don't don't really understand it. And then I realized it's impossible to understand. There's some things that you get to where you just worship and you don't try to overdefine. Thirdly, to hear the words of Jesus is to hear the voice of God. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me. Now, the simple part of this is what Jesus says, God says, because he's God. Jesus now takes the disciples way deeper than they're ready to process now. Way deeper, but he wants them to know this and remember this so that they'll canonize it and talk about it later. In philosophical terms, he's describing a Christian epistemology, their theory of knowledge, their theory of God. How do we know what we know looking at you? How do we know what we know when we look at the Father? How can we combine those two in a Christian idea of the oneness of the Trinity? Well, the disciples should have already grasped this. Sometime read uh, John chapter 10, verses 22 to 39. He talks about, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, I and the Father are one and it comes to that, that great statement that we all know in John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. The Jews answered him and said, you make yourself out to be a God. They got what he was saying. Isn't it amazing that the pagan thinking Jews of the day understood Jesus' claim to deity more than many people in the church do? So he tells them in verse 38, believe the works so that you may know that I understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He's picking that up. They still didn't get it. He comes back and review and tells the disciples this again. Look also down at, uh, at uh, verse 11. Believe me, I am in the Father. The Father is in me. Look at verse 20. You'll know that I am in my Father. And you and me, I can't wait to get to that, because the mystery of the Trinity is something that we participate in? Just wait till we get there. In John 17, 21, he says the same thing, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. What is this about? This is Jesus' oneness with the Father. And I tell you, I, I just train wrecked my brain all week trying to say, well, how can I explain this to my beloved flock? And then I realized I don't really understand it, so I'm not sure I can. J.C. Ryle, I love J.C. Ryle. It was almost like he put his arm around me and gave me some encouragement. He said this regarding the oneness that Jesus shares with the Father. I love this. We must often be content to believe and reverence the oneness Jesus shares with the Father without attempting to explain it. Uh, my arrogance, I was reading this and I thought, oh, this is great. I could stay this this week. Mission Road, we're going to look at the, in, the, in the mystery of the Trinity. We're going to really understand the Trinity on Sunday. Really, Rick? You arrogant little punk? <laughs> no. Let me tell you what I know about this verse. The Father's in Jesus. And Jesus is in the Father. And I can't improve on his words. 
Four ways to value the deity of Jesus. Look at Jesus to find God. Look for, to look for God is to find Jesus. To hear the words of Jesus is to hear the voice of God. There's your apologetic for owning and loving your Bible. And number four, to see the works of Jesus is to see the work of God. I was equally as humbled by this verse as well. Believe me, I love that simple admonition and command. Believe me, have faith, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And I love this because he knows they can't fully understand that. And he sees their heads tilting like that dog listening to a high whistle. What? And he says almost, with a, I think, with a smile on his face, otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. He says, okay, I can give you this epistemology, this, this theory of the ontology of God, what he's like, and the mystery of the Trinity, and the combination of the oneness of the Father. Oh, by the way, it's going to get into the Spirit here, beginning in verse 16, the oneness of the Trinity, and how they all function and work together. But ultimately, you have to come up to the Trinity and say, I believe Therefore, I understand. I don't understand so that I can believe. Can I just confess to you? I know that the egg illustration and the water illustration and the solid liquid vapor, I know, I've seen all those with the Trinity. All of them have limitations. And ultimately, we come up and, say, and we say, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Wow. Just wow. How many gods do you have? One. In three persons. How many is that? Three. How does that work out? Can't wait to find out in heaven. I think I told you the, the discussion I had uh, with, with one of my sons that totally, I had a total Trinity meltdown. He just said, Dad, what, when you think of heaven, which member of the Trinity do you think about? It's a good question. So I said, well, I, you know, I think I think about Christ, Jesus, but that's in Revelation 5. But in Revelation 4, you have the Father, and the Spirit is in the lampstands in Revelation 1. But, but you know, when I think of heaven, I think of Isaiah 6, which has you know, God on the throne, holy, holy, holy. But in John 12, Jesus said, I was the one sitting on the throne, holy, holy, holy was happening. Then you get to Revelation 4, the one on the throne, holy, 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 Revelation 5, that one who we thought was Jesus, now gives the title deed to the earth over to the Lamb in chapter 5. You probably should talk to your mom about this. <laughs> but I love the grace in the end of verse 11. He says, if you don't get it, just believe in the works. Just look at me, Jesus says, look at me and what I've done and say, Wow. The, the conclusion of this passage is really to only say, hallelujah, what a savior. There are times when we need to come as a child and say, I believe, but man, this is above my spiritual pay grade. And someday faith will become sight. I love that oft-quoted sentence that C.S. Lewis says. He said, the first words out of every Christian lips when they get to heaven will be, of course. But until then, 
we believe, and we come up to this wonderful wall that's it's like predestination and election and belief. Can't get over it, under it, can't go around it. It's just too massive. And so you just back up from the wall and worship. His ways are not our ways. He's bigger than our minds. And Jesus is explaining that to them in the moment. So his grace is, okay, guys, I know I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. You're going to worship. You're going to get that some level. But hey, what? Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Would you at least look at what I've done and see that I'm deity in flesh? Merrill Tenney said, furthermore, if a if personality must be employed to represent God, then personality cannot be less than God to do him justice, nor can it be so far above humanity that it cannot communicate God perfectly to men. For this reason, John says that the only son who is at the Father's side has made him known, John 1.18. The way Jesus made known the character and reality of the Father was by his words and his works. Those are the two things in this passage that Jesus tells us to hold on to his words, and his works. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.